Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chabruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Yibamot, daf Samach Bav, page 66. So we have a new Mishnah here today, actually a new parak. We're in the seventh parak of Yibamot, hard to believe. And um, this Mishnah is going to go back to a previous topic we've seen before, which discusses who is entitled to eat truma after they marry a Kohen. And of course, in typical Mishnah Gemara fashion, Instead of telling us who can eat truma, it's going to start with the case of sort of who can't eat truma. Or more, what I should say is, is a case where uh, Cohen enters into a prohibited marriage, right? Either Cohen Gadol marries a widow or regular Cohen marries a divorced woman. What is the status of whether or not they can actually participate or eat truma? considering that that's not really a sanctioned marriage. And so the Mishnah reads as follows, and there's going to be a lot of terms in this Mishnah as well. So the case of a widow who marries a Kohen Gadol, or divorcee or a Chalutza, right, who marries a regular Kohen, if she brings him or brings into the marriage Malog slaves, and sewn Barzell slaves. Okay, so this is something that we need to spend a little bit of time uh, defining. And Anne, if I leave anything out, please, please, please uh, jump in here. So basically, when a woman enters into a marriage, any properties that she actually owns are categorized into these two uh, categories that the Mishnah gives us, a Malog or sewn Barzell. And the husband has different rights to those types of properties. Um, and in a way, that's what she's bringing uh, to the marriage, right? So um, there's the nichnasei malo, which is basically property um, that has a very, and you can say the word in English, what it is. It's usufruct, but we don't know. It's not a word that I know, meaning maybe somebody with legal background or knows, ancient Akkadian background. Word. I do not I know every word, but, but you no, know but. Every word. No, I really don't. But but what I can tell you is that if you have the exact right legal background or the exact right like ancient Akkadian background, then you will know this term. But otherwise, I, I don't know how we're expected to know that usufruct means malog. Meaning, I I read the definition of usufruct on you know online, and I said, oh, it's nixe malog. You know, like it doesn't help. It's not it's not a helpful definition because it, I don't. I mean, again, unless you happen to know this term, but. I don't think it's common. It, so, what it means is exactly this. It's this kind of property, which has particular terms, you know, in the context of, right. in the context so of Malogue, marriage. Right. So what Malogue property is, it's sort of property she doesn't declare to be Stone Barzell property, which we'll explain in a minute. Um, and it's not part of her ketubah. She retains ownership of that property. The husband enjoys uh, or can, you know, use any of the produce of anything that it produces on that property. And if she gets widowed and or divorced, the benefit. Right. She and gets she benefit, gets benefit. That's a good way to say it. But once she's widowed or divorced, she takes back ownership of that property as it um as is, right? Whether it's appreciated in its value or depreciated, mm -hmm. but she sort of always owned it. So she just she just it's sort of like she just takes it as it is. The stone she gets, she, right, so she gets she gets that original thing back, but anything that he has done to in let's say to increase the value, he gets that benefit. She right. she'll get the principal back, 
but let's meaning let's assume that everything always goes up in value, which of course is not true, but it makes for an easier example. He's entitled to the to the improvements that he may have made. Um, and then we have new, you know, uh, stone barzel, which literally means you know uh, iron sheep. But the idea is supposed to be that it's a fixed uh, value. So this is something that would be recorded in the ketubah itself. Um, you know, could be referred to in some places. Actually, this would be like the dowry. And if the marriage ends in divorce, or again, she's widowed, right? The woman is sort of paid back at the property's original assessment, right? Even if it was, again, even if it was lost or, um, you know, if, if it decreased, uh, decreased in value. So that's the idea is that the husband is totally responsible for this stone barzel, it has in itself a, a fixed, uh, it, it's a fixed value. That's why it's like it's barzel. It's, it's something that's, uh, I guess, is like, um, it, it is hard. Um, and the only thing I want to ask you, your Dana, is that I think that some of our definitions of Malog versus stone barzel come from this Mishnah. Meaning, as you go on in the Mishnah, we're going to see like these definitions, the who gets the rights to what shows up here. Right. And but the thing that's key here for this mission, as it pertains to Truma, is that in a way, Malog properties sort of still have an ownership right to the woman, whereas Son Barzell, once she brings that into a marriage, it's as if it's actually owned. It's not as if it's owned by the husband. And so therefore, they're going to be treated differently. So if you have Avde Malog, right? So in other words, the mission now we're going to go on. If you have the Malog slaves, lo yochlu truma, they are not allowed um, to eat truma, right? When this woman is married to a Kohen, right? Normally when a woman's married to a Kohen, she and her slaves would be allowed uh, to eat truma. But here we have a case where a woman married a Kohen, either the, a widow marries a Kohen Gadol or a Grusha or a Chalutza marries a Kohen. And the Kohen, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, she's a halala, right? She's a, a, a woman. I mean, it literally means like from Chilu, where the English translation would be profaned, but I don't love that. It's, you know, it's one of those That's Hebrew a, words. It, he's it in that bad. Like right. It has like a particular connotation in Hebrew, I would say. And she actually can't eat truma because of this. Now, since the Malog slaves are really owned by the wife, right? Because, uh, it's owned by the wife, um, so she and the she can't eat truma, and the Malog slaves can't actually tr- eat truma. However, Abdate Son Barzel Yochlu, whereas the Son Barzel slaves, because those are really owned by the husband, okay, and they're not, you know, therefore it's not. There's no, uh, we don't care that the wife really can't eat truma because she shouldn't have entered into this marriage and she's disqualified from eating truma. But those Adson Barzell slaves are owned by the husband, and therefore those slaves actually can eat the can eat the truma. So now the Gemara, the Mishnah is going to explain this a little more. The Elohain Abde Malog, right? These are sort of the 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 rules, or or this is what applies to Malog slaves. Imetu if they die during the marriage, Metu lot the death is her loss. Beim Otiro and if they increase in value during the marriage, Hotiro lot the increase in value goes to her. Even though the husband is responsible for their food, they may not eat the coins truma. Because in other words, the value is tied to her ownership. It's not tied to the husband's ownership. 
Um, and now they're going to explain Tzom Barzel. These are the rules for Tzom Barzel slaves. If they die during the marriage, the death is his loss. And if they increase in value, the increase goes to him. And since he is completely responsible for the value, they may eat truma because they're really considered to be his property. So very interesting way to look at this whole issue of what happened. First of all, we've, we've you know, seen before, like who's entitled to truma. And it's a great example that they use, which is, okay, obviously this must have happened. I don't think this is a boundary pushing mission, right? And I think we've all seen in our own life, you know, Kohanim who maybe have married a divorced woman, like this, these things do happen. Um, but they're really just giving sort of the practical piece, which is like, well, what happens with the truma? The woman clearly is not going to be allowed to eat truma, but what happens to the slaves that she brings into that marriage? And based on what type of category they are, whether it's Malog, whether it's Son Barzell, will determine what is the relationship to the husband? Are they really considered the husband's property? And therefore, are they entitled to also eat truma? So then now the Mishnah goes sort of to the original basic law that defines all of this. Um and says, Bat Yisrael So a daughter of Israel who marries a coin, the Ichnisna lo Abadim, and she brings slaves into that marriage. But this is, a, this is a kosher marriage. Right. This is a kosher marriage, exactly. Bain Abdei Malog, Bain Abdei Tzom Barzel. Whether they're Malog slaves or Tzom Barzel slaves, everybody here gets the truma because this was a valid, this was a kosher marriage, right? This was a, a kadosh marriage, okay? And the daughter of a Kohen who marries a Yisrael, and she brings slaves into that marriage. They may no longer eat truma once that marriage takes place. So even though when she was in her father's home and those slaves were part of that father's estate or she was still functioning in the household of a Kohen, right? Everybody, she and her Malog slaves and her Tzom Barzel slaves, they were allowed to eat truma. But once her status changes and now she becomes part of a Yisrael home, she is no longer allowed to. So we will see some of these concepts about the type of property. This will be brought up in the, in the Masachik Ketubot um, later on as well. But, you know, I think these are very interesting halachic, basic halachic concepts to understand uh, sort of, you know, what are the economic ramifications of marriage. And again, remember in, in the times of the Mishnah and Gemara, I mean, up until really the modern era when women started to work, marriage was very much transactional. I mean, that's why we call it a Kenyan, right? It's literally, it's it's an acquiring, it's ownership. It, it has an economic uh, purpose to it. We'll discuss much more of that when we get to Gedushan. And so therefore we have to understand the halacha, what happens to the property that the woman actually brings into the marriage and what happens to the slaves who everybody's responsible to make sure are fed? What kind of food can they eat? When are they entitled to truma and when are they not entitled to truma? So I also want to note that for all of our modern sensibilities that are like screaming about slavery and how could it be, right, that they would own slaves. And because nowadays, you know, certainly in the Western world and certainly in our modern sensibilities and values, we would say a person cannot own another person. Um, the Gemara is treating this case, or the Mishnah rather, is treating this case as an example that has practical ramifications, meaning the truma piece of it, right, on the against the backdrop 
of what was the reality back in the day. How many slaves were really coming into marriages and so on? I, I don't know how what the percentage of people who you know who who owned slaves, the number of people who were slaves, uh, to what extent this was practical in that way, I don't know. But the the mission is going to handle it as you know simply another case because it's the kind of thing that was you know part of the the it's difficult to say nowadays but the property holdings of people back in the day nowadays when we talk about Tzon uh, Barzel and Malog, or and in other Masachtot even I think the examples end up being much more about land property as opposed to slave property but land property is not relevant to the Truma example right so it needs to be you know it's, it's I don't know that it's pushing boundaries here, Dana, to see exactly how far it goes, but it is explaining, you know, how far does it, what what are the implications for eating truma? Yeah, I, I agree. Look, I, I think also, yes, slavery does not appeal to us as modern people. Um, but, you know, I think there was a thing here that it, actually this was very protective of women. Like, as misogynistic as a lot of this masakat has been for us, you know, what this, it, this actually protects the woman's property in a way. Yes, the husband gets the benefit of her property, but there's also an understanding here that he's going to have to support, like he would have to support whatever slaves came into that marriage and make sure they were fed and cared for. So I, you know, I, I just want to put it in that context. I'm not at all endorsing the price right. of slavery, but <laughs> recognize sort of what was protective here for women and for her slaves. Okay, thank you. So I want to jump to the very end of the daf. I'm actually going to read a couple of words even onto the next daf, um, where we have kind of, I would say, the case law, like the the actual, let's say, an incident or an event that kind of illustrates these uh, practical definitions. Hahi itata da'ela le'lagavra itzla demelta biktubata. This is all Aramaic, right? And it talks about this case where a story, meaning it, not a case like a theoretical case, an actual event where a particular woman, that woman brought into her marriage. What did she bring? She brought in itzla, um, which seems to be a robe that's made the melted the that's made of fine wood, fine wool. Excuse me, the melta. That's the word that means the wool, right? And this is buktubata. It's in her ktuba that this is her guaranteed property, meaning tzon barzel. This is hers, it will come back to her. I imagine it was quite valuable. I guess we would now think about this in the context of what? I don't know, furs maybe, right? In terms of value of of a of a cloak, of a robe. You know, it, clothing nowadays is much cheaper, but this is something that was finely wrought. So, Shreif, the husband died. Shkaluha yatmei ufarsua aminta. So what happens? The, the after the husband dies, the orphans, his children, took that same robe, spread it over him as a shroud, and of course now she wants it back, right? Meaning this is her guaranteed possession that's supposed to come back to her in the event of death or divorce. Amarava Kanya Mitna. Rava says the dead, the dead, meaning this man, has been kona it. He has acquired it. What does it mean? He's you can't get any benefit from something that has been consecrated for the dead. Meaning, once something is designated for the 
use for the protection for the kavod of the mate, we don't then take it back to use it for the living. nanai Yosef. So nanai, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, nanai said it was the son of Rav Yosef Rava, the son of Rava. So this sounds like it's his grandson, right? Says to Rav Kahana. Va'ama Rava, Ama Rav Nachman, didn't Rav, Rava say that Rav Nachman said, Halacha Karev Yehuda, meaning all of this, all of these names are here to ask a question on Rava's statement. Namely, didn't Rava say that Rav Nachman said that the halachas and the opinion of Rav Yehuda, what did Rav Yehuda say? Amar lei, mi lo moda Rav Yehuda de mechusar gavaina, gavaina, guvaina, sorry. So what happens? Didn't Rav Yehuda say that the robe you know, wasn't he wasn't he saying that the robe was not yet collected, meaning she hasn't taken it back. It's still under his possession. It's still under his possession. And then since it's in his possession, then his heirs can then use it as the shroud that they did. Meaning she needed, apparently, according to this view, she needed to take it back sooner. So the Gemara says, well, Rav was really following his own rationale as well. How do we know this? So Rav has a, you know, as a general principle, he says that when you consecrate, when you have the consecration of property, then, and at the same time, you have that prohibition against benefiting from chametz, hektish and chametz, right? And shichror. What's the last one? Shichror the the freeing of a slave, right? Meaning releasing the property from uh, the property, the human property from the lien. So if any of these things are on being used as collateral or under a lien for a debt, and then they get consecrated, or it's Pesach and it was a and it was leavened bread, right? Or it's a slave who has been freed, then that lien is gone, right? It's it's over. And the creditor, like the person who wants to come and collect, can no longer collect from these particular items. The creditor will have to collect from some other property. So the implication then is that this robe, this woman who wants a robe back, she's entitled to the value of the robe from the man's estate, from her, from her husband's estate, but not that robe itself because it has been, meaning even though it was her nixay, Tzon Barzel, even though it should have come back to her, in this particular case, because it was consecrated for the dead, um, you know, in, in covering him, um, she no longer can get it back. She can no longer get any benefit from it. She couldn't wear it, etc. So it's no longer, it, it's kind of, it's it's an example of Nechzei Tzon Barzel that defies our definition of Tzon Barzel in order to prove it. Meaning, we get the example of what it is supposed to be even though in this case, it's, you know, she, her claim is rejected because it's already been used in this way. Should they have used it in this way? Well, should she have collected it sooner, right? Like the the question of how how the widow or the divorcee comes to collect her own barzel is a good question. But Tachlis, you know, at the end of the day, um, she's entitled to it unless something has been done to to mess with it, which is fundamentally what happened here. So, I, you know, I think it's interesting to see how these all these different types of properties um, work. And again, I think this was probably like a practical question. I don't get the sense that this was like, this doesn't feel outlandish to me. No, I think it's definitional. Yes, I think that's a great way to say it. And I think 
in terms of like our meta understanding of Gemara, right? Like sometimes we have what we, you know, everyone knows I'm obsessed with the boundary pushing um, <laughs> cases. But I think here the, the Gemara understands that they need a lot of work around the definitions. Like, I don't know that these definitions were so clear to the average person. You know, sometimes we have language or concepts that are used where you sort of get a sense like everybody knew what that meant, you know? And we modern learners who maybe are not as familiar with some halakhic concept sort of have to read it and be like, I'm not quite sure what they're talking about. But here you definitely get a sense like, I think this was confusing. I don't know if confusing is the right word. This is very, very legal. And so therefore it requires a lot of definition here in a way that I think is different sometimes with other halakhic concepts that we've had. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff and our new definitions of property in the context of marriage. Uh, thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.